Welcome to the Highly Spirited Podcast. I'm your host, Stephanie McNew. I love cocktails and I love the macabre. So every week I'm bringing you a cocktail recipe in history and some ghost stories. So let's get ready to get lit and get scared. Welcome back, my spooky babies. This is the late as I've ever recorded one of these episodes. It is Thursday night, nine o'clock. And I usually have these things like wrapped up, ready to go on Sunday, Tuesday at the latest, and like they drop on midnights on Friday. So they're there for you Friday morning. This one, you're lucky you're getting it at all. Like, I don't know what happened to my week. It just was like, I think it was like a time suck. I don't know, like a time warp or something. I just got so sidetracked this week doing God knows what. So it is Thursday night and this is dropping Friday morning. I might just drop it Thursday night when I'm done. I don't know. But anyways, I am super excited for today's episode. We're going to talk about one of my favorite personal genres of monsters, vampires. Maybe they're considered monsters. I don't know, but I'm not sure what else to call them. And Bela Lugosi's Dracula is considered one of the universal monsters. So I'm going to put vampires in the monster category or a supernatural monster category. They're not like a cryptid or anything. But before diving into all things vampire, we're going to need a cocktail. And obviously it had to be the Bloody Mary. By now we know cocktails have many origin stories and the Bloody Mary is no different. It's got a few different origin stories and inventors of its own. The original Bloody Mary was quite simple, consisting of half vodka, half tomato juice. And if French bartender Ferdinand Patois is credited with creating it in 1921 at the New York bar in Paris, a regular hangout of Ernest Hemingway and other expats. At this time, the drink was just referred to as a bucket of blood at the New York bar. The 21 Club in New York City also claims the Bloody Mary was created there by frequent guest and comedian George Jessel. He referred to the vodka and tomato juice combo as a quick little pick-me-up, but this wasn't until the late 1930s. The first printed version of a Bloody Mary was in Florida Cocktails publication by El Florida in 1934. Patois claims to have later perfected the drink in the 1930s by adding Worcester sauce, War- like seriously, how do we pronounce that damn word? Worcester sauce, Worcester sauce, you know the stupid sauce that I'm talking about though. <laughs> he also added lemon juice to balance it out. Bloody Marys can simply be garnished with a celery stock, but today they can run the gamut and have damn near a full meal topping them. Everything from veggies to like a whole chicken to shrimp. If you can figure out how to put it on a straw or a stick, you can garnish a Bloody Mary with it. The origin of the name also has multiple sources it could have came from. I mean, they could have just kept calling it a bucket of blood, but it did change and some believe it was named after Hollywood starlet Mary Pickford. Others believe it was named after England's Queen Mary I, who had quite the bloody reputation. But the actual lady it was named after was most likely a cabaret performer. A guest at the New York bar in Paris claimed the drink looked like his girlfriend, who he met at a cabaret, whose name happened to be Mary. And I don't know if that's a compliment, right? Like, it was tomato juice and vodka. Oh, it looks like my girlfriend. What does that mean, sir? Is that a compliment? Or is she bland and... I I don't know what that means, but (laughs) it was most likely, though, named after the cabaret dancer Mary. This was in the 1920s, and the drinks creator, Ferdinand Patois, happened to be there and agreed that a Bloody Mary sounded much better than a bucket of blood. There's really about a billion ways to make this drink and still call it a Bloody Mary. As long as you have vodka and tomato juice in there somewhere, it's a Bloody Mary, baby. 
you can serve it in whatever glassware you like as well. This isn't a drink I love, but I do kind of love that it ha doesn't have a lot of rules. You can doctor this drink up with, you know, Worcester sauce, hot sauce, lemon juice, or even swap out the vodka for a rye whiskey if you feel like it. They're actually excellent. Um, highly recommend using Limestone Branches Minor Case Rye with this. We had them the first year in Key West for breakfast every day. Like 10 out of 10, excellent choice to switch out vodka. You can also just be basic and garnish it with a celery stick or nothing at all, or you can just put a whole damn brunch on top of it if you feel like it. This one is truly just a choose your own adventure type of cocktail. And I love that for the Bloody Mary. It's not my go-to. I'm not a big tomato juice girl. Like I just feel like that's like, I don't know, having tomato soup with vodka in it, but you know, to each their own, go for it. That's what you like in the mornings. I'm more of a mimosa gal myself. But anyways, that is the Bloody Mary. After this quick break, I'll be right back with all things vampire. Hey guys, did you know I have a new book out? It's called Drinking with the Stars, Cocktails for the Zodiac. And it's exactly what it sounds like. It is a fun little book that pairs a cocktail with each zodiac sign. So inside is a little blurb about your star sign and then the cocktail I think best pairs with it. It's really fun to go through and make these cocktails. So check it out. It's available on Amazon and I can post a link in the show notes. Cheers. I'm back. Let's talk about all things vampire. Stories of vampires have been around for centuries. And although vampires may vary in appearance and skill sets, like some of them are hideous, beast-like creatures, while others are super attractive, undead humans. Some have the ability to fly, hypnotize, or even have telepathic gifts. Despite their differences, they still have one goal, to sustain themselves on human blood. Some do it out of necessity, and others do it because it is necessary, and it's also pleasurable. Vampires have like this sexy thing about them. Like they're just not eating to eat you. Like they're eating you because like they're into it, right? <laughs> like vampires have that about them. Vampires date back to ancient Greece and they were called Verulacas. It was believed that one would become a vampire if they led a sacrilegious way of life or if they were buried in unconsecrated ground. It was also believed that eating the meat of a sheep that was attacked by a wolf could cause vampirism. Greek vampires were not the attractive kind, which is disappointing because Greek people are freaking beautiful, but the vampires and their folklore become swollen, almost round and bloated and have like this reddish complexion. They find their victims by knocking on doors. If they knock once and receive no answer, they will move along to the next home, causing no harm. If the homeowner does open the door, legend has it they would die within a matter of days and become a Vralaka themselves, which led to a superstition that one should not open the door unless they hear a second knock. This superstition is still prevalent in some villages and is most likely where the folklore of a vampire cannot enter without being invited in stems from. Another ancient vampire was not truly a vampire at all, but an Egyptian goddess, Sekhmet, daughter of sun god Ra. Sekhmet was a lion-headed goddess and ruled over war, death, and healing. Her father sent her to Earth to punish the humans for being disobedient and unfaithful. The, the punishment was to be slaughtered. Sekhmet did as she was asked and sustained herself on the blood of those she slaughtered. She got a little too into it, though, and Ra had to reel her back in once he thought the humans had been punished enough. He tricked her by dyeing beer red and convincing her it was human blood. She soon became drunk and passed out, which stopped her rampage. Girl was into it. She was 
I'm going to take out all the humans. I'm going to drink all this blood. She really, really liked it. (laughs) It was like getting grounded, right? Like dad brought her right back in. Vampires hating garlic is a large part of vampire lore and superstition that's widely popular in pop culture. So why is it seemingly a fact that garlic repeals vampires? It's most likely due to a blood disease known as porphyria. Porphyria was somewhat prominent in the Middle Ages, and not a lot was known medically about it. I mean, they didn't medically know about anything. That's back when you got ghosts in your blood. Do cocaine about it. Like they, have, they didn't know shit about medicine or the human body. We now know it's caused by a buildup of a chemical called porphyrins in the blood because the body stops processing hemoglobin for a myriad of reasons. But back to garlic. A chemical compound found in garlic could irritate the symptoms of those with porphyria. Other symptoms include anemia, which made victims super sensitive to sunlight, so much so they would blister after just a short amount of time in the sun. The lesions this caused could cause the nose and fingers to erode if they didn't heal properly. Another symptom was rapid hair growth. Some people suffering from this disease could appear pale, avoiding the sunlight, but having extra long hair and body hair while disliking garlic, thus making it very easy to mistake them for vampires. Mirrors. Legend has it vampires cannot see their own reflection in mirrors, and the reason why is because mirrors used to be backed with silver when they were first manufactured. Silver is a pure metal, and being pure, it repels vampires. It also will burn them if it comes in direct contact with their skin. So it's one of the purest metals. It's not like an amalgam mixed with anything, and because they're evil and undead, they can't, pure things repel them. They can't touch them. But modern mirrors are made with aluminum backings instead of silver, so a modern-day vampire likely would be able to see themselves in a modern-day mirror. But another part of the mirror vampire lore is that mirrors cannot reflect someone without a soul, and vampires, being undead, no longer have a soul, which explains why vampires also do not show up in photographs. And there's so much folklore throughout history and some cultures that believe photographs can capture one's soul. A lot of Amish communities still believe that and don't allow photos of themselves to be taken. The Victorians had a weird thing with mirrors and believed that if someone died in the home, all the mirrors must be covered with black cloth, lest the dearly departed soul get stuck in them and couldn't move on. So being soulless and these items apparently stealing souls in some cultures makes sense for the vampire lore that they don't have reflections and cannot be photographed. The sun. If you read any books or watched any movies about vampires, you already know that the sunlight can cause their demise, or at least burn and injure them severely. But why? I really never knew why. I was just like, vampire, sleeps in a casket, creature of the night, has to be back in the casket by daylight. Okay, got it. Great. I just took it as facts for most of my life. But I looked into some lore on why sunlight is such an issue for them. And it's apparently because the sunlight, like God, if you believe in the Christian God, but this also makes sense for Ra too, even though he turned his own daughter into a bloodthirsty vampire. Vampires are dark, evil creatures of the night, and the light is everything they are not. So it's like being exposed to God, the purest light. With this lore and logic, it makes sense why some would be adverse to crosses and holy water as well. It's pure. It's it's of God. It should be the purest thing in the world. So that's why their evil souls can't be around sunlight or crosses. A wooden stake through the heart. Another thing I just took as fact, the movies have truly like rotted my brain, but I do love horror movies. A stake through the heart may kill the vampire, sure, but they're undead. It's not likely, it's not like they have a beating heart anyways. 
The real reason the stake works, at least in the living human mind, is because it pins them down and they couldn't leave their coffin if the stake was pinning them. It doesn't even have to be wooden. It could be iron or anything else. And very off topic, my mom used to have this fun Halloween party game when we were kids where she'd have like the stuffed scarecrow and put this vampire mask on it. It was a creepy fucking mask too. And whoever we'd like line up blindfolded, she'd give us like a little steak. I think it was like a shish kebab stick usually or like just a tree, like a limb. But we'd line up and whoever got closest to the heart to stab this scarecrow vampire we won that was such a fun game she should bring that back actually but anyway it's back to the iron people used to put iron cages over the graves of suspected vampires as well and i mean iron does have some supernatural like spiritual powers but the cages were more were more so to physically keep them in their graves they also used to put bricks between their teeth to keep them from rising and devouring humans Okay, so we've gotten through a lot of the lore. Let's get into some real-life vampires, starting with Vlad the Impaler. Vlad the Impaler was one of Romania's greatest rulers and warriors. He was quite vicious to his opponents, stopping at nothing to win a war. He was known for impaling other countries' soldiers on his castle lawn with stakes, mostly as a warning that he meant business and also just because he fucking could. Vlad, however, was not a vampire, although he was the second son of Vlad Dracul, who was also not a vampire, but Bram Stoker did take inspiration from the both of them when he wrote Dracula in 1897. So you can see where Dracula gets his name from Vlad's dad, Vlad Dracul. It's right there. Dracula was written over 400 years after Vlad's death. Transylvania wasn't even associated with vampires until Stoker's novel. Romanian folklore did have what they called the Strigoi, which were spirits of the undead that would rise from their graves at night and haunt local villages, feasting on the living's blood. Strigoi's were believed to be the souls of those who died violently or didn't have pro- a proper Christian burial. Strigoi folklore also included them not liking garlic, so villagers would smear their doors and windows with garlic at night and make their children sleep with necklaces made of garlic bulbs for protection. Bats also had no folklore tying them to vampires until Stoker's Dracula. His writing of having Dracula turn into bats was purely fiction and has no historical reference. Vampire bats don't even exist in Europe, but they have been tied to vampires through pop culture for centuries now, and that is all thanks to Bram Stoker. So I have to talk about the absolute insanity that is the Highgate Vampire in Highgate Cemetery in London, England. The vampire rumor started on Halloween 1968 when a group of shitheads vandalized the cemetery and desecrated a corpse. They took flowers off of multiple graves and put them in a circle around a coffin, then made an arrow of flowers pointing to his coffin, where they had driven an iron cross through the lid into the chest of the body inside. No one was ever caught or held accountable for this, but it was just the start of things getting even more insane at Highgate Cemetery. In February 1970, a man named David Ferrant wrote to a local paper stating he had seen a gray specter inside the cemetery just, just that past December, and he wanted to know if anyone else had any similar experiences. People replied saying yes and reported seeing a tall man in a hat, a ghost riding a bicycle, a woman in white, a pale face that looked out between the bars of the gate, and people re- also reported seeing a pale gray figure by the pond and hearing voices and bells ringing. Then an absolutely bonkers man named Sean Manchester started saying that the gray figure Farrer reported was in fact a vampire. Not just a vampire, but the king of vampires. 
who probably also practiced black magic. You know, just got to throw that in there. What's You're not the king of vampires if you don't practice black magic. Of course he does. The public really got into this, which caused some weird feud rivalry thing between Farrer and Manchester. Manchester claimed he was going to hold an exorcism on Friday, March 13, 1970, to exorcise the spirit. This claim was aired in an interview on a news station, and not even two hours after it aired, a mob of supernatural enthusiasts and curious people flocked through the cemetery gates. Police tried to control the crowd and minimize damage. Manchester did not exercise anything that evening except for maybe his own mouth. In August of 1970, the headless body of a burnt woman was found near a mausoleum. Ferret was found nearby in the cemetery carrying a crucifix and a wooden stake. He was arrested but let go and nothing ever came of the charges. Manchester, not to be outdone on the crazy scale, showed up to the cemetery a few days later with some friends and forced open a family vault. He claimed a psychic told him this particular vault held the body of a vampire. He broke in and opened the lid to the coffin, about ready to puncture the body inside with a wooden stake, when one of his friends convinced him not to do it. Both Ferrant and Manchester spoke for decades about the Highgate vampire, perpetuating rumors that it existed and really just trying to one-up each other until they both died later on in life. Ferrant was arrested in 1974 for vandalizing monuments, but he tried to say it was a group of Satanists instead of him. That one bonkers. America's oldest vampire was named Mercy Brown. Mercy was not truly a vampire as we know today, but 1890s New Englanders couldn't be convinced otherwise. There was even a New England vampire panic, but it was mostly just because people were dying of tuberculosis, or known then as consumption, and doctors just did not understand the disease. The Brown family resided in Exeter, Rhode Island, and consisted of George, Mary Eliza, and daughters Mary Olive and Mercy, and son Edwin. When Edwin contracted the disease, rumors in town swirled that one of the family members was a vampire, and that's what caused the family to come down with such an awful illness. Because of this, George gave permission to have his family's bodies exhumed. It was believed at that time that a vampire wouldn't decompose properly. The bodies of Mary Eliza and Mary Olive had decomposed as expected. When Mercy was exhumed, her body showed very few signs of decomposition, and her heart still had blood in it. Obviously, this meant she was a vampire. As vampire superstition of the time stated, Mercy's heart and liver were removed from her corpse and burned. Then the ashes of her organs were mixed with water as a sort of tonic and given to poor sick Edwin to drink in hopes to cure him of consumption. But big shocker, it didn't work, and he died two months later. The remainder of Mercy's body was reburied in the Baptist Church of Exeter's graveyard. So I previously covered the vampires of New Orleans on a previous episode in season one of this podcast on September 9th of last year. It was episode 17, I believe, but they're still worth mentioning again. New Orleans is a spooky little town that just leads itself to witches, ghosts, vampires, and everything else in between. New Orleans vampires include Count St. Germain, perhaps a time-traveling vampire. He traveled the world and seemed to know everything about everywhere, and he had ungodly amounts of money. He charmed all the New Orleans high society with dinner parties that he never ate at. He just sipped what they believed was red wine from a goblet while his guests ate. They might have thought it was odd, but they were too polite to mention it. Until one day, a a supposed prostitute fell from St. Germain's balcony. 
When bystanders ran to assist her, she said she did not fall, but she jumped on purpose and that the Count was trying to bite her. She was escorted to the hospital, and the police told Count St. Germain it was late and just come by the station in the morning to sort this out. It's probably just some misunderstanding. But by the morning, St. Germain was gone. He had disappeared into the night. When the police went to serve a warrant and realized he was gone, they discovered a large collection of open wine bottles filled with a thick red liquid that was not wine, and they found bloodstained clothes spanning multiple time periods of fashion. The Carter brothers seemed to be just regular guys who worked on the docks and shared an apartment on Royal Street, but they were anything but normal, and it was not found out until 1932 when a disheveled bloody girl ran out of their door down Royal Street seeking help. She told the police the brothers tied her and others up and drained their blood when they came home at night. Her ropes weren't tied tight enough and she was able to escape. She brought police back to their home where they found other victims in various states of almost dead, tied up with bloody bandages on their neck and wrists. The police decided to ambush the brothers when they got home from working the docks that night. It's worth noting that the Carter brothers were not large men. They were only 5'6", maybe 160 pounds. But rumors have it the Carter brothers fought off seven of the officers, then jumped from their balcony and disappeared into the night to never be seen again. But rumors do have that they come back to that home. It's on Royal and St. Anne Street on the corner. If you look up at that balcony on Mardi Gras, you might see one of the Carter brothers. So that's a fun ghost story also for New Orleans. The Casket Girls are an iconic New Orleans tale of vampires. They were young French women shipped over to be the brides of the settlers who ended up in New Orleans. When the girls arrived, they were pale and sickly looking and carrying suitcases that were in the shape of small coffins. They were sent to the third floor of the Ursuline convent to live until they could be matched with a husband. The nuns carried the ladies' cassettes. They were Their suitcases were called cassettes, so there was probably some French-English translation that didn't quite come over the correct way, so they were called cassettes. The nuns carried these up to the third floor. These suitcases should have contained the clothes and other valuables the girls would have brought over with them on the ship. When the nuns went back up to unpack them, they discovered that they were empty, sparking rumors that these were not suitcases, but rather caskets, and the pale women weren't just shipsick, but were vampires. (laughs) The nuns sealed off the third floor, nailing windows shut with nails that were blessed by the Pope himself, and no one has ever been up there again. And speaking of France, they might have had some of their very own vampires. Gillis de Rye lived from 1404 to 1440 and fought alongside Joan of Arc, but he wasn't all that good. He also had a sadistic side and enjoyed murdering children, boys especially. He was accused of being a Satanist and was also brought on trial for murder charges, after which he was strangled. Not hanged, but strangled. They're fucking brutal in the 1400s. After he died, they burned his body in an effort to keep him from rising up from the grave as a vampire. Another suspected French vampire was Viscount de Morive, who was a nobleman during the French Revolution. He hated common folks and started executing members of his own staff just because he could. He was eventually assassinated and buried, but after his burial, children started dying with what looked like bite marks on their necks. Rumors spread for over 72 years that the Viscount was a vampire and the one biting and killing these children. His grandson finally got tired of the rumors and agreed to have his grandfather's body exhumed to investigate if he were a vampire or not. 
Local authorities opened the vault, which was shared with other corpses who were decaying as expected. The Viscount's body still appeared to be fresh and lacked any decay. His heart still had blood in it, clearly meant he was a vampire. His body was removed from the vault and the stake was driven through his heart and blood spurted out as the body groaned. Afterwards, the body was burned and there was no more reports of children mysteriously being killed. Even Italy has its own suspected vampire. In 2006, a female body was unearthed in a Venice mass grave from the plague era with a brick shoved into its mouth. This was common practice as gravediggers were quite busy back then. Faces of plague victims were often covered with cloth shrouds and bacteria would eat away at the shroud and some bodies would become bloated with gas or just have bloody mouths just because of the bacteria and the way they were decaying. But it would make them look like they were still alive. Corpses this happened to were called shroud eaters and they were believed to be vampires. In order to keep them from feeding on the shroud, which they believed kept them alive if the shroud was going into their mouth, they believed that's what they fed on, it would be removed and something inedible, something hard, like a brick, would be shoved into their mouth to starve them so that they would die. So quite a list of vampire lore there, and of course Hollywood and pop culture have kept vampires on our brains for centuries as well now. Vampires weren't always the sexy rich men we think of today. Count Orlok in Nosferatu was quite a gnarly looking thing. And did you know he had a name? Yeah, it's not Nosferatu. That was the movie name. His name was Count Orlok, which was one of the first adaptations of Stoker's Dracula. And I don't think vampires were really thought of as attractive until Bela Lugosi played Dracula in 1931. And I mean, he was a handsome man. He was hard to make hideous. <laughs> so Dracula became hot thus making vampires and horror movies that followed that hot like before like they were you know tuberculosis patients pythoria patients they were sick people they were pale they were gross but dracula bella lugosi made that vampire hot so we've had hot vampires ever since i think we can definitely credit that to lugosi's role in dracula so i mean like look at anne rice's interview with the vampire Louis and Lestat, they did not have to be that well-dressed and decent-looking, but you know what? Like, they weren't for me. Like, they were for each other, for sure. They weren't for me. I was definitely more into Antonio Banderas as Armand in that movie. Like, when they go to Paris and see him in the catacombs, oh, Armand was a vibe for me. <laughs> I liked that vampire a lot. <laughs> but then, I mean, look at Twilight. It had teenage girls in the early 2000s absolutely losing their minds over sparkly vampire Edward Cullen, or for some, werewolf Jacob. I mean, there were even like Team Edward and Team Jacob shirts that girls would wear to like show their alliance to like which fictional hot monsters they were into. Like, what a time to be alive. I was a teenager at that time. I read the Twilight books. I liked them, but I was never like, oh, I'm Team Edward. I'm Team Jacob. I thought they were both real whiny and annoying. Edward's brother Jasper, though, was definitely into Jasper. <laughs> I like, I like the side reel guys, I guess. I don't know. I mean, The Lost Boys in 1987 probably had the same effect for high school girls then. Corey Heim, Corey Feldman, they were a big deal, little heartthrobs. And then add in Keith or Sutherland as a bad boy vampire. Like, please, this movie swoon-worthy for teenage girls at that time. And one of my more recent favorites is What We Do on the Shadows is what we do in the shadows on FX. They're all hot idiot vampires. Like, and I love it. Like, so great. And this is, in my mind, an honorary vampire. He's not a vampire, but I thought he was when I was a kid. 
And that is Tim Curry in the Rocky Horror Picture Show. And I don't know why I was like 11 thinking this man was a vampire. Also, yes, I was 11 years old, allowed to watch this movie. Anyways, that's a non-thing. But I was thinking, oh, he's just a vampire. Cool. And he's really just a trans alien. (laughs) But maybe it's because they were supposed to be from Transylvania. So, like, my little brain was like, Transylvania equals vampires. Because that's what pop culture has told us. But maybe it was also because he was, like, manipulative and seductive and they lived in this huge castle. I don't know. But Dr. Frankenfurter gave me vampire vibes, okay? And I was really a whole adult when I realized he's not a vampire. He's just He just wears black and has great makeup and he's a trans alien is what he is. Uh, <laughs> I really thought he was a vampire for, like, at least 15 years of my life. But anyways, I'm going to wrap this one up. Until next time, give us a like, follow, review, tell a friend. If you want to chime in, send me a DM. What vampire do you think is hot? Like, I want to know. Or if you have a favorite vampire lore or vampire story I didn't cover, send that to me too. I'm definitely interested. But until next time, friends, cheers.